Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barthlow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. My name is CB. I get the distinct pleasure of serving here in this house. It's my home church, and I just love being here. I'm looking for uh, one of our guys here today, Henry. Is Henry here? Henry, are you in the building? Henry, would you come up here? Would you all help me thank God for Henry Ward? Henry, come up here. Come up here. Come on all the way up. All the way up. Hey. Wait, I can't see you. He's wearing camouflage, get it? He's wearing camouflage. Uh, hey, it's our custom here at this church to celebrate those who are serving in, uh, in integrity, in power, and in grace. Uh, we call uh, our monthly award the Beacon Servant Leader of the Month. And, and this month, I wanted to take an opportunity to celebrate Henry. Uh, amen. Amen. At this church... I rarely elevate quickly. We take time. We walk together, and when the Lord says it's time to elevate a person into a position of leadership, then we do it, but never too soon. And, um, and, and Henry actually is an exception to that. Henry walked into this church with an eager heart and a desire to serve and a vision and a humility that, um, that is rare, to be honest with you. And we were getting ready to transition one of our deacons so that he could walk into the next season of his ministry. Deacon John, who's in the back, there he is. He was leading our safety team for a while, for actually since we began, and he was ready to transition. He's now leading our men's uh, Wednesday night men's group called the Bible Bros. Amen. But before we can transition, everybody, I, I got to have somebody in position. And Henry stepped up and, and uh, proven himself to be a faithful leader. In fact, the first time we met, he already had visions and dreams for the safety team. He had more forms and certifications than I had even known were real. Uh, and, and I was just encouraged to see what the Lord has done. So if you feel safe in this house, it's primarily today because of uh, Henry's leadership. And I wanted to celebrate you. My friend, give you this trophy uh, so that you can show all your friends. And I wanted to give you a small gift on behalf of the church to tell you we love you. Thank you for serving. Church, would you do me a favor? Would you stretch your hands to Henry this morning? Let's bless him today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our friend. Thank you for his service. Thank you for his life. And thank you for the best days that are yet to come. God, as he serves in this house and pours out, I ask that you'd continue to pour back into him a double portion. God, I ask that you'd, you'd favor him, that you'd go before him, that the work of his hand would be seen by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Help me thank Henry one more time. Thank God for Henry. Appreciate you, brother. Love you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I love celebrating the people in our house who serve so faithfully. It's, uh, it's a hallmark of ours to be able to make much of those in the house. And I love those little trophies. I have a box of those trophies. And I, I'm wondering when I'm going to get one. No, I, uh, I'm just excited to be able to celebrate uh, those in our house. And actually, uh, something's coming down the pipe that I'll just fill you in on. At the end of the year, every year, we do a Christmas party for our volunteers and leaders. And this year, I decided, let's just throw a party for everybody. Amen? And so uh, you'll hear about it here in the next month. But what we do at the end of the year is we throw a Christmas party where primarily we pick sort of the servants and leaders in the house who've just proven steadfast for, for the whole year. Uh, a couple years ago, our, we gave out trophies, but we gave out good old-fashioned humongous rodeo trophies that were like this big. And actually, uh, Shay Aguilar, who serves on our team, uh, she won the, 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 we call it the light, which is like the beacon of the year. And if you've ever met Shay, she's this tall, and her trophy was this tall. And I just thought that was the funniest thing in the whole wide world. Uh, last year, our trophies were, in fact, actually wrestling belts, which... I don't know what kind of church you've grown up in, but that's what we do here. So I'm excited about that and just getting a chance to celebrate all that God is doing in our house. Amen? Hey, I'm ready to jump in the Word. If y'all are ready, say yeah. yeah. Do me a favor, open your Bible up to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We're continuing this series in Luke chapter 9. It's our custom every fall to read through one or two chapters in the Gospel of Luke to study them. Uh, and and we've, we've landed here this fall in uh, Luke chapter 9. And today we're going to pick up in verses 23 through 27. 
where we've walked through over the last several weeks is, is coming to understand the, the theme of this series, which is seeing Jesus clearly. Our desire in our time of study here in Luke 9 is to come not only to be introduced to Jesus, but now come around to understanding Jesus, who he is on his terms, what he came to do according to his definition, not through the lens of anybody else, but literally trusting Jesus on Jesus's terms. Amen? And so where we pick up today is in verse 23 through 27, a passage of scripture that no doubt many of you, if you've grown up in church, have heard at least in full or in part. But I endeavor today to break it down as best we can so we see it more clearly. Luke 9, verse 23, it reads like this. And he, as Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. No, no doubt, since you've been in this church, you've heard me quote much of this scripture in other teachings from other passages, line on line, precept upon precept, building the word of truth based on the word of truth. And if you've read through the book of Luke, you've probably read through this quickly. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is one of those passages that feels like it's so obvious you could just get the marrow and run with it. But one of the challenges for most of us as believers is we're, we're, we're not actually fully understanding the text when we read the text because this is an ancient document. Have you ever felt like you've been reading a book that was written in another language when you read the Bible? That's because it was written in another language. That's why. Don't feel strange. You're right on target. So today, what we're going to do is try to uncover, demystify, uh, unveil the mystery of the text. The title of our message today is to uncover the mystery. We want to take what's here and fully make it alive for us to totally understand what Jesus was saying and why. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And God, today we thank you for this text. God, I ask that today you would soften our hearts to receive from you. That God, you would cast out everything that is in us and that is in this room that would distract us or derail us or delay our ability to receive from you. Father, right now we stand in agreement with a spirit of expectation. We say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And all that agreed said amen and amen. A couple weeks ago, I talked about Revelation and about how um, the text that we have, this word, the Bible, is written in such a fashion that over time God reveals himself. And, and I use the word Revelation in, 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 on purpose because it's, it's the word that God uses when he talks about the ways in which he uncovers the mysteries of himself. But I, I also use it because the word revelation has come to take kind of a negative connotation. People who deal in revelation, people who love revelation, they're so weird that you and I aren't interested in revelation. Amen? If anybody was like, I have the deepest, I'm like, never mind, I'm good. I just... And so I use those terms on purpose because I want to make sure that we don't let anybody else's tomfoolery or foolishness get in the way of God's word for us today. And so what we're talking about really is understanding the text clearly. And let's be honest, most of us, when we read the text, when we read the Bible, either in a devotional setting, in a Bible study, in church or on our own, we, we struggle to understand it. Amen? Amen. I mean, I, I today still don't know anybody who could just hammer through the book of Revelation and be like, got it. I've met few people who can walk all the way through the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch and understand the redemptive arc of Christ as it's revealed in the first part of the New Testament. The truth of the matter is, is that this is an ancient document. Most scholars would agree that the Old Testament is, in fact, not only ancient, but it's a legal document. It's a conversation about covenant, about give and take. It's about an agreement between a God and his people. And it's written in an ancient language to an ancient people with ancient customs. And it's been translated down through time. And so it stands to reason that from time to time, you and I will struggle to get the meaning right off the bat. Amen. 
But that's not to say that you can't get the meaning. And it's not to say that only some people understand the text. Remember, we talked about last week how revelation is not delivered to those who are special. It's just delivered to those who are intimate. Understanding God is not about how smart you are. It's more about how willing you are to continue to press in and ask questions and trust him and love him and say more, 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 more. And so today what we're going to talk about is this passage of Scripture that I'm going to be totally honest with you. I guarantee you most of us have wrong. And that's not to say that I have figured out the secret of the text. No. It's just that I've spent time in this text along with other teachers who have taught me how to spend time in the text. Amen. Pastors need pastors. Amen. And we ask these three questions of the text. And here's something if you're taking notes today, and if you specifically struggle to study the Bible, I want you to write these three things down. These are the three questions that I always ask of the text when studying the Bible to help me understand what's happening and why it matters for me. The first one is this, who's writing and what's their intention? This is just good old-fashioned teaching. Don't worry, we'll get to sweating and spitting in just a minute. The teaching is this. When you read the text, you have to ask yourself, who's writing this passage of Scripture? Who's the author and what is their intent? The theologian would say it like this. Who's the original author and what's his original intent? What's the reasoning behind it? First question. Second question is this. Who's the original audience? To whom is the text written? And what would have been their original understanding? Amen. Amen. So first, who's writing and what are they saying? Second, who's hearing and what are they hearing? And then third, what is the universal principle that God is trying to convey to his people then and now? Who's writing? Who's hearing? And what's God trying to do behind all of it? And the reason I set that before you today is because I don't want to pastor a church full of people who can't wait to learn the Bible, but have to wait to learn the Bible till Sunday. I want to be mindful that we are a body of believers who gather together, as is our commandment on Sundays, to learn, to study Scripture, and to do it together, but also are embedded in the text, are leaning into the Lord Monday through Saturday as well. The first time you hear the Bible should not be on Sunday morning each week. Amen. You should be hearing it, you should be reading it, you should be eating it all the days of your life. So when I walk into the room on Sunday and start preaching, it's not new revelation, it's just confirmation about what God has already been revealing to you. Amen? That's one of the best ways you know you're in the text is if you walk in on Sunday and the pastor's reading your mail or the pastor is quoting your scripture and you're like, "Ooh, I serve a good God. Because our intention here is not that you have a high opinion of me, it's that you have a high opinion of the word. But if the only time you hear the word is when it comes through me, well, then you'll miss the word. Y'all with me? I'm teaching this morning. I'm just trying to push y'all. I'm just trying to get us started. So here's what we ask. Who's writing? Who's listening? And what's the reasoning? Now, this doesn't always work with every text. You have to be mindful that the Bible is written in both prose and poetry. There's narrative and there's literature. It's written in both prescriptive, meaning text that is meant to give you information and commandment, but also descriptive text, mean here's what happened when. And so our job as believers is to be in the word and asking these questions and understand whether or not this text is a commandment or whether or not this text is a description. And this is where a lot of times the North American church has got it wrong. This is why in our country for 400 years of chattel slavery, slave owners justified the ownership of slavery by miss, missing a descriptive text and thinking it a prescriptive text. Oh, you're not with me. Follow me here. For many years, people have read the text wrong and said, well, it talks about slavery, therefore it must endorse slavery. That's like there's whole sects in the Christian religion who say, well, it talks about multiple wives, so therefore it must be good that there are multiple wives. Christians, let us not be so foolish to think that our religion is just emotive, just experiential, just here. It's a here faith. Remember, those who are transformed are first renewed in their mind you got to read your text. And if the only time you hear your text is when I'm reading it, it's going to be loud. And you need it to be the still small voice of the Lord. Amen? 
All right, let's look at this text. I hope that helps a little bit, just set the stage on how, how, how we study the Bible in a best way to do it. And, and I'm sorry, I'm wearing these baggy, I was told this was cool, but it's very uncomfortable. Oh, Lord have mercy. Anyway, look, we're going to dive through this text, these four verses, five verses today, and I want to break it down for you. You've heard much of this before. We're going to have three main points in this conversation, all about uncovering mystery. The first thing we're going to talk about is the cross. We're going to talk about the mystery of the cross. We're going to talk about the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom of God. And then we're going to talk about the mystery of the coming Christ. These are three main components in the Christian faith that if you miss, if you get it wrong, it can, it can delay the way in which you think about walking with the Lord. Amen? So let's talk about this first part here, verses 23, uh, right off the top. It says he. Now, this is Jesus, right after he's just had this confession of faith to Peter. Peter has been asked personally, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, all right, you got it, figure it out. Then here comes the first piece of information. I am the Christ, and I came to die. I will be rejected and betrayed and tortured, and I will die. And right after that conversation, Luke, in his understanding of the stories that happened, turns and says this. Jesus turned to all of the people and told them clearly, if anyone would come after me, meaning to trust me, to believe me, to learn from me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now we've talked about this a million times, but most of us miss this. Here's what I want you to understand. Don't worry if you ever hear something in the text or you ever hear something in church and you get it, uh, you're misinformed or you misinterpret it. That, that's part and parcel of the journey. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a verse or a teaching in church and just been like, got it, no problem, totally understand it. And then hear it later in life and be like, I literally had no idea what I was talking. Can I tell you this just transparently at my own church? There have been times I have taught things that I knew to be true only to later find out not true. I don't know if you know, but I, I, I was trained in an entirely charismatic world. And I love the charismatic church. But part of the charismatic church sometimes is that the faith isn't always biblical faith. Sometimes the faith is cultural faith. I used to preach things that I thought were in the text but weren't in the text because they felt good and everybody else said them. Amen? And what happens when we have a faith like that is that we'll perpetuate notions and ideas that they sound like God, they're, they're God-adjacent, but they're not God. And then what happens is when those temporal, earthly concepts fall, fail, well, then people think God has failed. And it's our job as believers to examine the text clearly to understand that when we teach, when we receive, when we fellowship, when we grow together, the things that we're saying are the things of God and nothing less. Amen. And so when we, admit it, when we get it wrong, we have to make it right. Can I say this to you? When we get it wrong, we have to make, one more time, when we get it wrong, we have to make it right. You can't be saying things like, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. I know it feels good, but don't you say that to somebody. Because God will give you more than you can handle. Y'all with me? Some days he'll give you some stuff and you're like, I quit. And he's like, great. That was the whole point. You ready for me to take over? We say things that we... We think help, but they don't help because we, we miss it. The disciples missed it too. Jesus has just told the disciples, the son of man will die. And then right here he turns and says, and if anyone wants to follow me, they must take up their cross. Immediately here, Jesus is saying, I will die and here's how. And the disciples miss it. Remember we talked about last week how Jesus had been alluding to the fact that he was the Messiah, that he would suffer, that he would come, that he would die, that he would be back alive again. He had been alluding to these things and the disciples left and right missed it. Then the day comes where he finally reveals the truth in stark plain language and they're all like, ugh. Gosh, because that's how revelation works sometimes, right? Here's the same situation. He says, I'm going to die, and here's how I'll die. And they miss it here as well. And truth be told, most of us miss this part also. What's interesting here is he's talking about the requirements to follow Jesus. Jesus himself is saying, here's what it will cost you to follow me. And you and I might say upon first glance, wait a minute, it doesn't cost me anything. For did not Jesus pay it all? 
ever been to a church or heard a message like that? Trusting in Jesus is so sweet, so simple. It costs you nothing. Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, here's what it's going to cost you. See, we have to be mindful that the things that we're learning, the things we're believing, the things that we're teaching are the things of God and nothing less. Now, here's what happens here in this moment. He begins to explain not only the way in which he will die, but also the way in which he invites those who want to be called by his name, Jesus, should also die. He says, you, if you if you want to follow me, you have to let go of you. you. You have to pick up your cross and then with it on your back, then follow me. Now, we read this text through the lens of 2,000 years of Christian faith. And we mistake what Jesus is saying about the cross itself. You see, when we see this word, take, pick up your cross, most of us think one of two things. We either think, oh, the cross, the most beautiful symbol of redemption. I have a wall full of collectible crosses. I, I have a cross tattooed on me. I, I have a cross necklace. Cross is the most beautiful thing in the world, the cross. Or... We think, ah, yes, the cross, the metaphor of burden. People use the phrase right here from this text all the time outside the context of the Christian faith to say, you must pick up your cross. Oh, what a cross to bear. It's a phrase that we use that minimizes what Jesus was saying to imply that, oh, the next season of your life might be a little uncomfortable. Believe me, when Jesus is talking, he's not talking about a little bit of discomfort. We think... It's either beautiful redemption or a metaphor for burden. And Jesus is not saying that at all. And here's how we come to know. We have to ask who's writing and to whom are they writing and what is the principle behind it. Here's the thing you should understand. When Jesus is talking to the crowd about what it will take for them to follow and he says the cross, not one person in that group would have thought the beautiful symbol of redemption for it had not been used as such yet. And no one in that cross would have thought the metaphor for burden. No, the cross was altogether different. You see, in the Roman age, the cross was used only as an instrument for death. When Jesus would have said this word, every single person within sound of his voice would have thought only one thing. The single most terrifying object of abject horror used to torture and kill in the most disgusting of ways, the worst of the worst of the worst. When Jesus would have said, pick up your cross, it would have been downright offensive. Everyone in that group would have said, hey, that's weird. They would not have liked the sound of it at all. You have to understand that people who were crucified by the Roman government and the authority of that time throughout the entire empire, those chosen to be crucified were not crucified with dignity. Crucifixion was meant to make an example of killers and rapists, treason and thieves. And what would happen for someone who was condemned to die on a cross was that their cross was made in front of them. They were meant to see the instrument be constructed as to add further torture to the impending death. And once complete, they would have been given that cross to carry through the streets of the town in which they were convicted. They were not given due process. There was no rule of law, no speedy trial, no privacy, no client privilege, no nothing. They were given the cross only to walk in front of those whom they've harmed, frightened, those who had accused them and testified against them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who's been a victim of a serious crime, but it's very difficult for people who've been hurt by others to hold back their emotion. And in this day and age, when a criminal would carry their cross in front of people, there would have been spitting and ridicule and anger and violence all the way up until the moment of death. Do you see what I'm painting here? 
And then upon the moment that they arrive on the hill upon which they would have been killed, usually it was placed in a public square or on the outskirts of town so that travelers could see they were used to be mocked. They were used to be an example to say, don't mess up here. This is what happens to the worst of the worst. That cross would have been planted into the ground right after they had been placed upon it. As you know, most people were roped to a cross. Jesus was nailed to a cross. Regardless of the instrument used to secure the accused, the manner of death took somewhere between four hours and six days. The longest recorded crucifixion on record was a husband and wife crucified by each other who commiserated and consoled one another and they lasted ten days. And the manner in which one would die on a cross was through dehydration if they lasted the four days, but primarily it was through asphyxiation because the weight of the body hanging off of the arms over time would fatigue the muscles in such a fashion that only the soft tissue connecting both joint marrow would hold them. And over time that would give way so the only thing that would hold would be the fascia, the underlying tissue between muscle and bone, muscle and skin, And it would hold them on the cross only in so much as they would be able to hold their breath. And then, using every every ounce of fortitude, they would put the weight of their body on their feet and stand up. And let go. And in front of anybody who wanted to mock them, the cross would be used to suffocate someone who had access to air. It is a horrific and ironic way to die. When Jesus is stabbed in his side and blood and water flow, that is unique to the story of Jesus. When Jesus says, I thirst, and he's given a sponge full of vinegar, that is unique to Jesus. The audience that heard this conversation about the cross would have thought of no such intervention, no such sharpening of the pain, no such change in the course of action. Jesus were to say, if anyone wants to trust me, you must take up your cross. What he's saying is this. Deny yourself? Sure. But what I'm really saying is to be completely and totally removed of the comfort of this world. And in so doing, be completely and totally employed into the reliance of God. The unique thing about someone who is suffocating is when they gasp for air, they look And so someone who was hanging on the cross would have been dying and suffocating. Their last breath would have been to reach for the heaven with their lungs as though that is where air would come. Jesus says you must be uncomfortable and reliant. And you must also be willing to be on display. Here's the thing. Jesus did not accidentally get crucified. Y'all with me? Deacon Gio and I were talking about this earlier today. We were talking about how it's an awesome, misin- uh, often misconception for believers to say that Jesus was killed. Amen. But Jesus was not killed. Amen. Jesus willingly gave his life. And because we know that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of Man, upon whom all government and authority was rested on his shoulders, we know that he did not get murdered and was not given a death that was anything less than his choice. Jesus chose to be crucified. This was his choice. He chose to die in the single worst way possible. He chose to die in such a fashion that all the world would have to reconcile with the slain Savior, the image of the Messiah hanging on the cross. It was a public spectacle. And Jesus says, if you really want to follow me, I need you to understand that if you want to trust me, if you want to believe me, if you want to be with me, you must not only deny yourself and the creature comforts of this world, you must be willing to be on display for your faith. Are you willing to be displayed in your faith? 
That's really the question here. He's not saying, are you willing to go through difficult times? He's saying, are you willing to go through difficult times and let the whole world see and still not lose your faith in me? That's what he's saying here. It's not a metaphor for burden. It's not a conversation about the beautiful redemptive symbols of the Christian faith. He's saying, if you really want to trust me, you've got to be uncomfortable and totally reliant. You've got to suffer unto death and be willing for people to see you and, yes, even mock you for this. Now, having heard all that, and someone says, what a cross to bear. My prayer for you is that you will never hear this phrase the same way again. That you will understand when Jesus is calling people unto himself and he says this phrase, come unto me all who are labored and heavy burden for I will give you rest. That conversation is both true simultaneously alongside the idea that if you really want to follow me, you must also be willing to be uncomfortable and suffer and die. How can the two be true? I mean, isn't it interesting that many of us will, gosh, I sure do love that faith. The faith with no burden, you betcha. Which makes it easy to understand why when we read this passage and he says, deny yourself, we're like, well, that's for like Presbyterians or something. I don't know. That's like cranky Christians. <laughs> no, the, the two are simultaneously true. That's the mystery of the cross. That's the mystery of the cross, which is Jesus invites us to carry and endure on an instrument of death. And he calls, my God, he calls it rest. He says, if you really want me, you're going to get this. And believe me, it is far better than anything this world has to offer you. That's why the conversation changes right here in verse 24. He says, pick up your cross, follow me. Verse 40, 24, he says this. Now, here's why. For anyone who would save his life, what they have here, what they possess here, what they go after here, what the world deems as successful and beautiful and wonderful, all of the pleasures of this world. If anyone would save his life, believe me, you will lose it. Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever endures on the cross and hangs and dies and suffers and endures, he says, anyone who experiences that will save his life. Verse 25 what does it profit a man if he gains this whole world and loses his self, his soul, the life to come? Jesus is trying to explain the kingdom in like two sentences. He comes to say, let me explain to you very clearly what it really means to be a Christian. What, let, me, let, me, let me just tell you what it means to inherit eternal life and what it will cost you. And while I'm doing it, let me explain why it's a value, why you should love it, why you should want it. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the same kingdom that he taught the people to preach and to pray about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about a kingdom that you've heard me say before that's inverted. Have you ever heard that before? The kingdom of God is inverted. Watchman Nee, the great Korean theologian, said the kingdom is upside down. And what that means is this, when God talks about the kingdom of God, when Jesus illuminates about the day and the age to come where he rules and reigns, where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, everything that we have here will be flipped on its head. And he illuminates this. He talks about this. He hints at this all the time. He's talking about an inverted kingdom. He says oftentimes in, in Matthew 5, he says, remember, it's the humble who inherit the earth, not the bold, not the proud, not the rich, not the successful, not the strategizing, and not those who found the way to get all the cash. He says it's the humble who get everything. Later in Matthew, he says to just the 12 disciples, the last will be first. And those today who put themselves first in the back. That's why when the Apostle Paul echoes this teaching about the inverted kingdom, he's in 1 Corinthians 12, or 1 Corinthians 1, he says, it's, it's our God who uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
This is a teaching for every one of us today to make a clear distinction between this world and the world to come. Or should I say it like this? The world we want now and the world we should really want. Perhaps the biggest struggle with Christians is not that they don't read the Bible enough. That they don't pray. Or that they don't worship. Perhaps the biggest challenge for most Christians is that we don't relinquish our deep and abiding love for the things of the world. I am I'm victim to it just like you are. I mean, I don't have a ton of vices. Being a drug addict will make you poor and get used to having simple things. Come on, somebody. Amen. Amen. But I do have one. I like nice shoes. And, 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 and we're, you know, I'm a pastor, so we still ain't rich. But every once in a while, I'll buy nice shoes. And to be honest with you, that's a fleeting pleasure that is of no consequence. These shoes are fancy. I think they're rad. Do you know how uncomfortable they are? <laughs> Ridiculous. I can buy a $40 pair of Skechers that would be far nicer, right? But Skechers aren't nice. Why? Because I kind of still love the fleeting pleasures of world. Oh, well, let's talk about this. It's not even really the pleasure of the shoes. You know what it is. It's what the shoes say about me or what I perceive that they say about me to you or what I think that you think about me when you see my shoes. What a foolish thing for me to be obsessed with. I put my shoes on downstairs and I thought these are rad. What? Who cares? None of you came to see my shoes. Amen. And yet every one of us has something like that. It's the way in which we do our hair. It's our it's our style. It's the way in which we have conversations. People say, what do you do? And you don't like what you do. So you have a flowery way of saying what you do. You're in customer service, and you're like, I'm in client retention and consumer success? What does that mean? I just, I just want you to think that I'm successful according to the world's standards. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. Oh, yeah? Tell me about it. Well, I just got this job, and I got a better pay raise, and I met the girl of my dreams, and I drive this car, and, 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 and at no point do you go, i got to be honest with you, man, I was suffering from serious depression, and I've been falling down at the altar week after week, and my circumstances haven't changed, and I'm still broke as a joke, but i got to tell you, God's been healing my heart, and something's changing me, and I feel the power of the Holy Spirit, and I prayed for a lady yesterday, and she was sick, and she ain't sick no more, and I started giving like I never gave before, and things start opening up, and I'm part of a congregation full of people that are changing the world, and I've never seen anything like it before, and they say, well, wait, are you still broke? Still broke! But don't care! And that's what Jesus is teaching here. He's talking about the kingdom. Hear me. Not talking about this empire. Oh, Jesus is talking to a group of people right now who are under emperor leadership. They're in an empire that has rules and standards and, and, and a way in which they define success. And Jesus is talking to them about a kingdom, a kingdom that's far greater than any emperor and any rulership and any standard that could be set today, just like he talks to you and I today. No one in the kingdom cares about how much you make, especially Jesus. You will not get to walk up to the heavenly gates and say, 36 years at the same company, retired with a gold watch. And he's going to be like, you know what, usually we don't do this, but you can come right in. That's not how it works. Jesus is saying this, if any man seeks to preserve what he holds to be true here, thinking he could drag it into the kingdom, but I had all the things that made me look good, and everybody thought I was successful, he says, none of that will come in. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. So pick up your cross and lose your life that I might save it. I, I won't save that. I came to end that. So many of us are so deeply in love with the things of this world that we can't figure out why we can't get the things of God. And he says, I don't have any room to put it anywhere in your life. 
you've edged me out and your hands are really tightly gripped around all of these other things. If you, if you would just let go, you'd have open hands. Believe me, I would pour out from the windows of heaven a blessing you have not room enough to receive. You said, Pastor, that's not me. I am broke. I've been broke. How many have been broke? When you're really broke, you don't even say the K. You just, I've been broke. And having been broke, I know what it's like to think that I don't fall to this curse on Christians of being consumed with wealth, power, prestige. But sometimes the brokest people are the most consumed people. I mean, it, when your money doesn't get to the end of the month, do you know what you only think about all month? Money. And Jesus is talking to you again also. He's not saying, I'm not just giving a warning to the kings and the leaders and the princes. I'm also talking to the paupers and the losers and the down and out. I'm talking to every one of you to say, please understand you live in a fallen world, a broken world. It's meant to fall apart. Stop grasping at it. Stop trying to put it back together. In a nutshell, Jesus says this. You can't save face and be saved, just so we're clear. It's going to get a little messy, and you might be a little embarrassed, and that's super good for you. He invites us to release this life so that we can inherit eternal life. Amen? Now, talking about eternal life is like talking about heaven, and just so we're all clear, if you're first time here today at church, this is what heaven sounds like. These children, this is totally normal. I'm just preparing you. Amen? All right, let's transition real quick. I want to show you the last two parts of this text, verse 26 and 27. Jesus turns the conversation and he says this. Now, we've talked about what it's going to cost you, what you're going to have to pick up. We've talked about what you're going to have to let go. And then in verse 26, he talks about the hidden demeanor, your posture, your position of the heart afterwards. He says this. Now, forever, whoever is ashamed of me and, hear me, of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. Now let's not do 27 for just a second. I want to talk. We've talked about the mystery of the cross. We've talked about the mystery of the kingdom. I want to talk about the mystery of the coming Christ because this matters to us. Now we're going to do a, a huge deep dive on eschatology. But we are going to talk about the fact that we have a king who is going to return. Amen? Jesus one day will come back to redeem the world. It reads like this in Revelation 21. Let me read it for you. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. She was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, that's Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things of this world have passed away. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the, off the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Verse 8, you ready? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Hear me and hear me clear, church. Jesus is coming one day, and he is coming to bring the kingdom back. And he is coming to separate the living from the dead. He will come in all glory. There will be no mystery. Believe me, this will be a public spectacle and no one will be confused about who returns. Though the world says Jesus is both good or bad, They're, they've got an opinion on him. Some people that don't believe in the message of Jesus love the person of Jesus. On this day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess 
Even the ones that said Jesus is not real and blasphemed his name, they will recognize, oh no. Oops. Jesus is Lord. He will come in perfect glory, in the glory of the Father, surrounded by holy angels. And he will come to rightly divide the world. Hear me, that day is coming. And some, man, I, 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 I pray for uh, three things all the time. I pray for my family. I pray for our church. <laughs> and then I pray to see an angel all the time. And God's like, I'll take care of the family. Of course, I'll take care of the church. I don't think you can handle the angel. But I'm always praying to see the divine amongst the mundane. And the reason is because of this. I, I kind of want to be prepared for what I'm about to see. I cannot wait until the day that Jesus comes. I can't wait till he comes down and we hear... When all the believers are like, oh, <laughs> grab your things, let's go. I can't wait till I get to see my king, my king, my king. He's your king too, but believe me, he's my king. I can't wait till he comes down on that cloud and lands in all of his power and his righteousness where there's no mistake about not only his person but his message. I want to be the first one to run up to him. I'm knocking everybody down just to touch him, I promise you. I'm going to fall at his feet and I'm going to worship him until he tells me to stop. And then I'm going to ask him if I can worship him just a little bit longer. I can't wait to touch him, to hold him, to behold him, to have him hold me me and I want to be in that kingdom and in the teaching of his return Jesus is like I want you in the kingdom too but you might miss it there's a stark warning here in the text I could have called the whole message the warning. Because here's, here's what you cannot miss in this whole thing. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. To be ashamed means to turn one's back because of revulsion disgust or rejection. He's saying in this moment, you need to understand I'm coming back and I'm coming back to grab everybody who's mine. But if you have not on this earth said you're mine, then I won't override it. The conversation that he's talking about with you and I is the same conversation that he's talking about when he talks about the cross. He's talking about having a public faith, a faith that's willing to be on display. And I want to tell you today a quick, stark warning that should change the course of your faith. It's this. There are many who privately profess Jesus, but publicly say nothing. This warning is for you. There are many of us who are Christian on Sunday. We love the Lord. Yes, Lord. We sing all the songs and we know everything about it. We pray and we read. And then someone asks us a question about our faith. We say nothing. Or worse, when someone starts sharing what they believe about the world and you know it's not right, you know it's not true, you say nothing. The conversation to us is this. If you believe, then believe. Be public. Don't be private. And I want you to see this even more importantly. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me, that's the person and identity of Jesus. And my words. It's possible to be known as a Jesus freak, but not stand for truth ever. There are people throughout the body of Christ who everyone in their world knows they love Jesus. But they're also surrounded by a bunch of people who don't love Jesus. And the reason is because the people who don't love Jesus have found your Jesus faith to be so non-threatening and so little of a challenge, they're willing to accept your halfway Jesus. Oh, I'm preaching today. I hope you hear me. Hear me loud and clear. Jesus doesn't say, don't be ashamed of me. He says, don't be ashamed of me and every one of my words. 
He's saying, when you're in a room full of people who don't know me, talk to them about me and what I teach. When you're in a room full of people who are going the wrong way, tell them I'm the way and then show them the way. Please don't think that you've done God a service by saying I'm Jesus and I love him and he's so wonderful and everything else is also good. I'm willing to tolerate any lifestyle or co-sign or use pronouns or buy into anything that the world says. I don't want to offend you. I love Jesus and he's only love and he never says anything tough and so I won't either. Hear me, church, that's not it. He says if you're ashamed of me in my words and what I say, then when I come home, I will have to turn from you. The mystery of the coming king is that this will be a public spectacle. Just as his death was a public spectacle. Just as your faith is to be a public spectacle. I'm going to have the worship team come back up and worship with me for just a second. I want to push you really hard here at the end of this message. And I want to ask you this question. Two-fold question. The first one is this. Is your faith a public spectacle? Do people know that you have laid your life down for Jesus? And two, do they know how they can lay their life down as well. Have you shared this faith? Have you told this truth? Have you rebuked? Have you corrected? Have you instructed? Have you walked out in such a fashion that said, I love the Lord and I want you to love the Lord too, so I'm going to start telling you the truth. And you may not like it, but it's for your good. Have you done this? This is what Jesus is talking about. Amen? There's no bow your head. There's no cross your eyes. Cross, close. <laughs> Everybody cross your eyes. This is a question that you have to answer to Jesus this week. It really is. I, 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 I could call you all down here and we can lay hands, but the truth of the matter is this is, not, this is not something that changes on Sunday. This changes on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. He says, if you're ashamed of me, How about this? Just trust me. Just pick up your cross. Just follow me. Just be willing to suffer in public. Just be willing to be seen from me. Just be willing for people to point their finger, maybe, maybe be rejected. You'll even be betrayed. Just, just trust in me. I don't, I, I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to turn my back. So here's what it costs. Let go of this world. I have so much more in store for you. Church, would you stand to your feet? Let's worship just a little bit more today. Thanks for joining Be The Light Podcast with lead pastor C.B. Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org. To download our Beacon app, text BEACON to 97000. Once again, text BEACON to 97000. Whatever you do, please remember to be the light. Let's go!